0: stuff podcasts Hi, I'm Michael Wright and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. A quick note before we start, this is our final episode for a few weeks. After soldiering on through the holidays, we are taking a wee break. We'll be back after Waitangi weekend. So, on to our season finale of sorts. This episode is called Billy the Hunted One. It was written by press reporter Charlie Gates, who joins me now. Hi, Charlie. Hello, Michael. Billy the Hunted One. Who is your subject? So, he's a
1: guy called uh, William Stewart. And uh, he went on the run from police in 2008-2009, sparked probably one of the longest manhunts in New Zealand history, kind of over seven months on the run. So he was at large kind of across South Canterbury. He'd kind of robbed pharmacies and shops in the small towns across the Canterbury Plains and evaded police with kind of high-speed chases and doing handbrake turns down dirt
0: roads. So this was covered at the time, like he was a wanted criminal. He made the news in 2008, 2009, yeah?
1: Yeah, well, he actually became kind of a folk hero, really. There was a guy down in Timaru who wrote a folk song about him that was played on Radio New Zealand. There was a guy who um, made some money on Trade Me selling T-shirts that just said, Where's Billy? He became a real kind of celebrity, really.
0: So what drew you then to take another look at the story you know, more than a decade later?
1: Well, it was very heavily reported at the time because, he, you know, everybody was following this story of this man on the run, but no one had ever gone back and kind of considered the whole story, the whole sweep of Billy the Hunted One's story and told it all in one kind of cohesive way, basically.
0: So without giving too much away then, can you give us a taste of what what, what is the true story then of Billy the Hunted One?
1: But at the time, there was this myth about him being a kind of lone bushman who evaded police by kind of going bush. But what I've discovered is that was actually quite far from the truth. He kind of had associates and friends that would look after him, that would put him up in their house in exchange for stuff he was stealing from these pharmacies. So he wasn't that lone bushman. And he also wasn't a kind of friendly folk hero either. He had quite a dark, violent past
0: that I reveal in my story. All right, let's get into it. Here, with a bit of strong language, is Charlie Gates reading his story, Billy the Hunted One.
1: It was about one in the morning when the campervan pulled away from the farm and out onto a country road in South Canterbury. In the distance, across the flat landscape of the Canterbury Plains, the driver could see a lone pair of headlights moving through the darkness along a road that would eventually intersect with his. The lights came to a stop, then turned towards him. Whatever vehicle it was, it was now heading towards the campervan. As it drew closer and into the beam of his own headlights, the driver of the campervan got a good look at the green Nissan Navara Ute. It had a distinctive number plate Otira. You beauty, the driver thought. The driver of the camper van was a police officer. Four of his colleagues, armed members of the elite Special Tactics Group, were in the back. Hidden in a barn nearby was a team from the Armed Offenders Squad. They had been dispatched from Christchurch as part of a secret mission to capture a man who had been on the run for 236 days. Just minutes into the mission, they had found their target. He drove right past them. For more than seven months across 2008 and 2009, William Stewart became a peculiar kind of folk hero. He was an outlaw who lived off his wits in the South Island bush, escaped police in high-speed chases down Canterbury's dirt roads, offered lifts to hitchhikers, and carved thank you notes into tables at houses he raided for food and shelter. During his run, he stole nine cars and a motorcycle, and committed more than 40 burglaries, stealing everything from alpaca rugs to native plants. The effort to catch him involved helicopters, armed offender squads, and five private planes. A butcher wrote a song about him that was played on the radio, and an entrepreneur sold t-shirts celebrating his dash from the law. His exploits were reported around the world. In the UK, the Independent newspaper called him a folk hero who was captivating the nation with his exploits as he slips from town to town. Stuart enjoyed his notoriety. He even came up with a nickname for himself that the media and the public quickly adopted. Billy the Hunted One. The truth of his time on the run is less romantic. Stewart had a violent past, relied on help from friends while on the run, and was far from the lone bushman of media infamy. Drawing on police files released under the Official Information Act, interviews with family and friends of Stewart, and the only interview ever given by the man himself, this is the story of one of New Zealand's longest manhunts Told in full for the first time. Back on that back road in South Canterbury, Billy the Hunted One had no idea he was about to be captured. That there might be one last desperate high speed chase. Or maybe not. A moment after recognising the number plate, the police officer driving the campervan had an idea. I thought about ramming him. William Stewart's days on the run started quietly. In July 2008 he was released from prison on parole. Within weeks, he was reported acting suspiciously outside a dairy in Geraldine. On September 14th, he was arrested in Christchurch for possession of cannabis. He failed to appear in court on October the 3rd, and an arrest warrant was issued. His police mugshot appeared a few weeks later in Crime Stop, the regular column in the press newspaper of people wanted by the law. He looked younger than his 47 years, with a chiseled jawline and thick brown hair, spiky in the front and turning into a mullet that curled over his right shoulder. The photo was slightly out of date. His wavy hair now flowed down to his shoulders. His friends, who called him Billy, said that long hair was his pride and joy. Stuart next surfaced on December 16th. He was spotted driving his Nissan Terrano in the rural Taitapu area southwest of Christchurch by Constable Fiona Croft. She pursued him with lights and sirens, but Stuart would not stop. She chased him for about 10 kilometers. At one point, Stuart skidded through an intersection and narrowly missed a tractor towing a trailer before heading up a four-wheel drive track that Croft couldn't negotiate. He hid his car in the bushes and fled on foot. Stuart was not seen by police again until February the 10th. In that period, he was busy robbing homes and shops across the flatlands of South Canterbury. He stole a couple of cars, taking advantage of the fact that many people in rural areas still left their keys in the ignition. On December 29th, he stole a Mazda Bounty Ute from a farm in Leeston that contained a Ruger 22 semi semi-automatic rifle. From that day forward, he was considered armed and dangerous. Pharmacies were a favourite target. He would often rob a string of them in the early hours of the morning, smashing a hole in the glass front of each shop with a sledgehammer and crawling inside. Hiding his face with the hood of his bush jacket, and wearing protective gloves, he swept whole shelves of prescription drugs into his bag. Drugs containing pseudoephedrine, used in the manufacture of the methamphetamine P, were cleaned out, while other drugs remained untouched. His offending sprawled southwest from Christchurch across the Canterbury Plains, where he favored small towns that dot the flat farmland running from the foothills of the Southern Alps in the west to the Pacific coastline in the east. At 3am on January 26th, he robbed a pharmacy in Darfield, before robbing another one in nearby Methven just 90 minutes later. The next day, he robbed a service station in Rakaia. On February 10th, he had another encounter with the police. This time, it turned violent. Senior Constable Mike CQ spoke to witnesses after Stuart was spotted in South Canterbury. His interviews led him to the car park at Sharplin Falls, a scenic attraction tucked in the foothills of the Southern Alps about 20 kilometres west of Methven. In the car park was a Mazda Bounty Ute. Stuart was inside. When CQ tried to stop him, he sped off. For the next 30 minutes, CQ gave chase across 80 kilometres of sealed and gravel back roads. In his effort to escape, Stuart crossed the centre line, sped blindly through intersections, and used his handbrake to skid around corners at high speed. He roared through the small town of Mayfield at 160 kilometres an hour. CQ finally caught up with Stuart as he struggled to open a gate leading to the Rangitata River. CQ blocked the gate with his car, got out and leaned into Stuart's car, telling him he was under arrest and grappling with him. CQ punched Stuart, who eventually got out and grabbed an iron bar from the back of the ute. He swung it at CQ to get him to back off, got back in the ute and tried to pull away. CQ dashed back to his car and moved to block Stuart's escape. But Stuart rammed the side of the police car, pushing it out of the way and speeding off down a track towards the river. He dumped the ute, crossed the Rangitata River on foot, and stole a Ford Ranger from a piggery near Arundel. It was clear after this encounter that the police had a problem. A man was at large who knew the Canterby Brack roads, loved to drive fast and would violently resist arrest. He was fearless, possibly armed and happy to dump cars and steal new ones as required. And this was before he started courting infamy and burnishing his myth as a Kiwi larrikin on the run. He also had a grudge against the police. He claimed he had been badly beaten up by five officers in Christchurch in September 2008. Police investigated the allegation after it became public during his time on the run and declared it a load of rubbish. But the police were about to have a break in the case. They had found Stewart's secret base in the Christchurch suburbs. On March 11th, five months into the manhunt, Detective Senior Sergeant John Ray received a tip it claimed that Stuart was living in a property on Whale Street in the Christchurch suburb of Hallswell. Ray had not been closely involved in the search for Stuart up to this point, but as his offending escalated, more senior police officers joined the operation. Ray oversaw the search warrants issued for the Whale Street property. Officers discovered a cannabis growing operation in the garage. There were two grow tents with heat lamps, soil and fertiliser, being used to nurture 47 cannabis plants. A row of stumps was all that remained of a previous harvest. A radio scanner, which can be used to eavesdrop on police communications, crackled in the corner. Police searched the rest of the house. In Stewart's room they found the Ruger rifle stolen from a Leaston farm and a meth pipe next to his bed. Flatmates told police that Stuart had been patrolling the house at night with the rifle, and had at times been threatening and paranoid. Stuart wasn't home during the search. His landlady, Christina Anderson, said he returned to the house later that day to discover all his stuff had been seized. "'He just came in acting normal,' she told the press in 2009. Then he went into his room and went, "'Oh shit!' didn't say goodbye or anything, and just ran out the door. And that was it. Without his base of operations, Stuart was truly on the run for the first time. He took to the Port Hills, setting up a bivouac camp in a small forest above Gebbies Pass, and staying in derelict homes and farm sleepouts. He resurfaced to burgle a house in Lincoln, ram-raid a chemist in Hallswell, and rob another one in Leaston. On March 19th, yet another act of petty crime would turn Stuart into a folk hero. That night, he broke into a sleep-out on a farm in Teddington in Littleton Harbour. He helped himself to food and drink, and in the morning, used a knife to carve a note into a wooden table. Thanks, guys. Billy the Hunted One. He then stole a motorbike and headed off into the hills. Later, after he was captured, Stuart wrote a letter to the press explaining the carved note. He said it was a sign of gratitude to the farmer. I was holed up in his well-appointed smoker room. He had such a good setup: Coffee, pies and biscuits. Plus, I needed his motorbike so a thank you note was the least I could do. Soon after leaving the sleep out, Stuart was spotted by police at a roadblock in Governors Bay. He came down a hill, saw the roadblock, dumped his motorcycle and ran. All available police in the Christchurch area joined the search for Stuart in the Port Hills, along with a helicopter, the armed offenders squad and dog teams. More than 35 officers were involved. It was a futile act. Stuart had a head start and a large and rugged area in which to hide. It was impossible for police to find him. Stuart managed to cross the hills to Taitapu, about 18 kilometres away, without being spotted. Early the next morning, he was disturbed by a farmer and the AOS descended again. But, with a 90-minute head start, he easily slipped away. He broke into a house stole the keys to a Ford Falcon XR6 and hit the road. Almost immediately, he encountered another police roadblock. When an officer approached, Stuart put the lights on full beam, hit the gas and blew through the cordon. Then he pulled a handbrake turn and skidded sideways to freedom. Stuart was sighted one last time before he disappeared again. About 45 minutes after he slipped the roadblock, he picked up a couple of hitchhikers near Hororata. Stewart asked them if they knew where he could find some pea. He didn't know it, but his two passengers were on their way to a rally organised by the Patriots Motorcycle Club, a group of enthusiasts from New Zealand's armed forces. After a short drive, he dropped them off at the rally and told them they had just had a ride from the most wanted man in Canterbury. About eight days later, on March 30th, Stuart hit the big time. That was when the media reported on the note he carved into the farmhouse table. The public now had a catchy name for their alluring outlaw figure. As Billy the Hunted One, Stuart became notorious. One letter to the press newspaper sided with Stewart in his battle with the law. I would wager his biggest crime is to make the police look like the Keystone Cops. Another praised his ability to evade police. Could someone offer William Stewart a job in the forces as a training officer? It's obvious we haven't got the expertise he has in evasion tactics. People moved in to exploit Stuart's newfound popularity. Ashburton property developer Barry Tonycliffe started selling t-shirts on TradeMe with the slogan, Where's Billy? I guess it's the devil coming out in people, Tony Cliff told the press. But there is a bit of a game developing and the public are starting to get involved. Robbie Robertson, who worked at the Smithfield Freezing Works in Timaru, wrote a folk song about Stuart that was played on Radio New Zealand. He's a bit of a legend in this place at the moment, Robertson said, and he's obviously got a lot of followers out there. It's a talking point for people in the pubs. The legend spread. In Australia, the ABC ran an item on the manhunt. The reporter said Stewart had become a folk hero and described him as a Michael Bolton look-alike. New Zealand criminologist Greg Newbold appeared in the story and compared Stewart to George Wilder, the Kiwi criminal who became infamous after he escaped from prison three times in the 1960s. He's tapping into the same popularity base as Wilder as Ned Kelly, Newbold said. Even David and Goliath. The public always like the person who takes on superior odds and succeeds. Both Australians and New Zealanders have a healthy disrespect for authority and it brings that out as well. Stuart's growing infamy frustrated police. Senior Sergeant Stuart Monroe tried to deflate the myth in the media. This guy is a scumbag thief, he told the press. A career criminal. He doesn't care about other people and like many drug addicts, he would rob his own grandmother to get what he wants. He is not a nice person. In September 2005, Stewart and his girlfriend went to Nelson on what the press later described as a pea-fueled holiday. An argument turned violent and Stewart kept his partner captive in their motel room. He punched her, smothered her with a pillow, hacked at her hair with a knife, cut her hand and forced her into a shower fully dressed. You're not going to get out of here alive, he told her. The woman survived, but police later found traces of blood and clumps of cut hair in the motel room. Stewart was convicted of kidnapping, threatening to kill, wounding with reckless disregard for safety, breaching a protection order, assault with intent to injure, assaulting a female, and breach of community work. In February 2007, he was sentenced to three years and three months in prison. Two years later, while Stewart was on the run, Women's Refuge Coordinator Dawn Rangi-Smith vented her disgust at the public mythmaking. The refuge had supported Stewart's partner since the assault in 2005. It took years for her to get free of him because she was so terrified by him, Rangi Smith told Stuff in May 2009. They are making a folk hero out of him, and this is just the sort of thing he would love. We know we've had to pick up the pieces he's left lying around, as he's put the lives of a woman and children in danger. It's a slap in the face to Women's Refuge that someone in our community has written a song about him. She said Stuart's former partner was terrified now he was on the run again. She can't go to work because she is scared to drive there alone in case he is around. She has two children, and one is particularly scared and having nightmares again.
0: Hi, I'm Carol Hirschfeld, the Head of Video and Audio at Stuff. If you're enjoying our Long Reads podcast, how about contributing to the Stuff supporter programme? You can contribute any amount you choose and you can do it just once or monthly or annually. Direct support from people like you helps us produce the kind of journalism you're listening to right now. Go to stuff.co.nz forward slash support.
1: On April 21st, a chain of events began that would eventually lead to Stewart's capture. That day, Stewart was spotted in a rest stop at Staveley, near Ashburton, but was long gone by the time police arrived. Still, they searched the area. AOS teams, dogs and helicopters were deployed to scour the area north of the rest stop. The next day, aircraft searched the foothills to the west, near the town of Mount Summers. There was no sign of Stewart. He had holed up in a small wooden church just outside of Mount Summers, where he spent two uncomfortable nights sleeping in the spire. It was freezing and his body ached. Every couple of hours, he lit up a joint to ease the pain. Early on the third morning, after the search had died down, Stuart slipped out of the church, walked a few hundred metres down the road and stole a blue Mitsubishi Pajero. He was free once more. The Mount Summers incident proved a tipping point. Police, thwarted again, now escalated the matter. The elite special tactics group became involved. Steve, not his real name, is a former STG member who was involved in the AOS searches. We were getting sick of running around the hills looking for him. We were always too far behind. The publicity was always, bumbling police haven't been able to catch him again. A week later, on May 1st, Operation Stewart was launched, and control of the search moved to Inspector Malcolm Johnston in Christchurch. A tactical team would target Stuart's support network to pinpoint his whereabouts. Police files released under the Official Information Act shed some light on Stewart's associates. They detail how he had an accomplice for a handful of his pharmacy robberies who was never caught, and how he had a group of trusted friends in the Mayfield area who fed and sheltered him in exchange for stolen goods. He rarely camped wild in the bush, rather sleeping in his car in a lay-by or rest stop for a short period before he could find shelter elsewhere. Stewart saw himself as a bushman, the police file states, and would feed the story when talking to others that he was living rough in the bush. On May 26th, Steve and four other STG members were deployed to the countryside around Mayfield. Under the cover of darkness, they drove their cover vehicle, a commercial camper van, to a farmer's barn near the town. They were joined by an AOS backup team from Timaru, police had intelligence that Stuart was being supported by a farmer in Mayfield. The plan was close target reconnaissance. The STG team would head out during the night, park the camper van near the suspected farm and look for any suspicious activity. You walk down there and have a look over fences, Steve said. Have a sneaky creepy. On May 26th, about 1am, The STG and AOS teams had a briefing in the barn. STG would head out searching, AOS would remain behind to be called on if there was trouble or if Stuart was spotted. Soon after, the five STG members, armed and wearing camouflage gear, loaded into the campervan. Steve was driving. He hadn't long pulled out of the farm when he saw headlights to his left, a vehicle approaching on another road. As it neared, Steve could see it was a four-wheel drive. When he was 25 metres away, Steve said, I could see it was his vehicle. A green Nissan Navara. Number plate, Otira. The STG team was minutes into an operation to capture New Zealand's most wanted man, and he just happened to drive right past them. Steve thought about ending the manhunt right there. I seriously thought about ramming him, but the guys in the back weren't secured, and I'd have some explaining to do with the camper van. They lent them to us for free. Instead, he radioed the AOS team in the barn. I said, he's right there. He's driving down the road past us. The AOS team piled out of the barn in three vehicles and pulled up behind Stuart with their red and blue lights flashing. Steve did a U-turn and joined the chase. Once again, it was clear that Stuart was not going down without a fight. He turned his lights off and accelerated down the straight road, hitting 130 kilometres an hour. the AOS sergeant gave the command for a vehicle stop maneuver. Just after Stuart turned around a tight hairpin bend, the lead AOS car pulled up on his right. That car then tried to pressure Stuart off to the side of the road, but Stuart rammed the vehicle. The bull bars of his ute got caught on the side of the AOS car and tore the metal away it was written off. Eventually, Stuart was forced from the road and came to rest against a fence. The two other AOS cars pulled up behind and beside him. Using a loud hailer, they ordered him out of the vehicle. Stuart ignored them. The AOS sergeant saw Stuart reaching for items in the front seat, so he ordered CS gas pellets, tear gas, to be fired through the windows. Stuart burst out of the truck almost immediately. He had five words for his waiting captors. I've had a good run. When I embarked on this story, the person I wanted to talk to most was William Stewart. He had never spoken to the media about his extraordinary time on the run. I wanted to find out what his life was like as an outlaw, how he managed to avoid capture for so long, and how he felt about becoming a minor folk hero. But, just like during his fugitive days, Stuart was almost impossible to track down. He wasn't in any of the usual directories journalists use to try and contact people. He wasn't in the phone book. He wasn't registered to vote, and he didn't own any property. He was a ghost. His parole board reports showed he was released from prison on October twelfth, two 2015, after more than six years inside. But that was the last official record of him. I started to wonder if he was dead or back in prison. But then I found a vox Pop in the Timaru Herald in October 2019 that reassured me that he was alive and at large relatively recently. There was no doubting it was the same man. He was asked about petrol prices but quickly changed the subject. We pay too much for petrol. I'd like to see it lower for the general public. I'd like to see the government pursue the alternative Hemp. Eventually I tracked down a family member. They said he often hung out in the small town of Waimati, about 45 kilometres south of Timaru. So, I went to Waimati. I found a couple in a second-hand shop who said they knew him but hadn't seen him for a couple of weeks. The local police station said they hadn't seen him for a while either. I left my number with whoever would take it, with a message for Stuart asking him to call me. On the way back, I pulled into a petrol station just outside Waimati. Inside, I asked if anybody knew Stuart. Eventually, a man emerged from the workshop to talk to me. He said Stuart had popped in to say hello about 30 minutes ago. We had just missed him. The man told me that Stuart mainly lived in his car and had no computer or telephone because he feared the government would use them to track him. I left my number again. About a month later, I was sitting at my desk when my phone rang. Unknown number. It's Billy here. What do you want to talk about? Billy the hunted one. He seemed keen to tell me his side of the story, but nervous about drawing attention to himself. He said he sometimes considered writing a book about his exploits. I'm no saint, bruv, he said. People like me don't like to talk a lot. He said he was well suited to life on the run. I have quite a good knowledge of that area. I grew up all over the South Island, from Waitaki right up. I have a really good understanding of the various roads around the South Island. And I'm a high-speed driver. It all goes together. His cousin, Judith James, said a love of driving fast ran in the family. She remembers a time when Stuart took her for a drive in his new Nissan Skyline. He said, Hop in the car, and I'll show you how it goes when you're trying to escape from a cop. I was screaming, and the more I screamed, the faster he went. Stuart was always fearless and rebellious, she said, even as a child. He used to sit underneath a bull. He never knew fear. Stewart said he smoked cannabis because it helped with his post-traumatic stress disorder. He said it stopped him having vivid nightmares. Cannabis is the only thing that got me through that hard time. It cuts out your dream state at night. He still maintains that he was beaten up by the cops, and that was why he evaded capture with such passion. I was trying to get it out in the public, that something was going on, he said. This was my way of getting back at them. But James warned that her cousins sometimes told tall tales. You don't know with Billy whether it's true or not. Billy and I talked for about 25 minutes and arranged to meet up for a longer chat that never transpired. Conscious that I might never get a chance to speak to him again, I asked about his most vivid memory of the manhunt. He said he remembered being afraid the police would shoot him while he slept in his car at night. The thought of not waking up, of being shot through the window, the nightmare of that. His time on the run, he said, Felt like a distant memory. It's almost like it wasn't me that did it.
0: That was Billy the Hunted One on The Long Read from Stuff, written and read by Charlie Gates and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was mixed by Jack Price. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dudding. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on The Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.